Welcome to another episode of On Production. Today, we're fortunate to have Aaron Gordon, the executive producer and founder of Optic Sky Productions, with us. Optic Sky is doing some truly innovative work in the realm of production, VR, AR, motion graphics, and 3D digital assets. Let's dive in. Aaron, how are you, man? I'm awesome, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's really nice to have you on production to share a bit about your journey and kind of how you are thinking about production as it's evolving very, very quickly. Um, to start, could you share a bit about your professional journey and what led to founding Optic Sky Productions? I can. Yeah. I So I uh, right after college, I did a stint in features uh, as a DIT. And I'd always loved commercials. I, I'd, I'd really, at the time, wanted to um, move more into shooting. Um, but I just kind of was always the guy that kind of made it happen, you know, uh, just to make it happen type of guy. And so I was in all these features as DIT. You get as a DIT the craziest requests because you're the guy at the, you know, at the computer all day while everyone else is like burning like a billion calories. And we kind of had moved into, um, I, I brought a couple friends on because they wanted onset edits. They wanted, um, you know, a lot of grading and weirdly enough, we kind of almost started in, in editing features and, and doing posts on features from there on the indie scene. But I had always loved commercials and I had mostly been in New York city for a lot of these features. I'd come, gone back to Western New York and luckily because of a, of a mentor of mine uh, who was a professor at RIT when I was there, he was kind of in retirement and he started to just randomly say, Hey, if I could pass you a couple of clients, like, would you, would you be down? And I was like, sure. You know, not really knowing at all what that entailed. And, but he did and, and gave us some really cool kind of regional opportunities, but very quickly what became apparent to me as I then of course did my due diligence and started researching all of like Western New York region and, um, and kind of beyond was, you know, in New York state outside of New York city, there was no larger form production companies. There was no, um, no one kind of pushing the, the edge here. And it was a pretty insular region where a lot of the agencies here weren't really kind of going out to a lot of the larger production companies outside the region. So I kind of had this moment where I was like, huh, I really want to do commercials I'm doing a lot of features. We have a little bit of revenue coming in because of posts on features. Could we really make a, a, a stink here? And, and more than anything, could we kind of push what I felt like was the region was a little bit stuck in the 90s? And I was like, could we push it to, to some modern, you know, creative quality? And that's what we set out to do. And kind of very quickly, um, we, we, we got there faster than we thought. And then, you know, one day I turned to the team and I was like, okay, guys, national time, like how do we, you know, make a, a much larger national image. But at the, by the time we had done that, what's really cool about how we had evolved and kind of always learning as we go, um, this was around the time when a lot of new technologies were coming out. So we were like, let's hit the national scene, but we were, we always were a big fan of R&D, kind of pushing the edge, trying new things. And so we had um, really kind of gotten into our hands in the really random stuff through experiential. And um, we really were pursuing at that point, augmented reality and virtual reality. We kind of formalized it. We were like, well, let's, you know, let's actually make this an offering. And then as things have evolved, a lot of those technologies formed around the same tech stack. So we had already put all the money and the effort into diving into that. And so while we're doing production, while we're, we're, we've gotten, you know, really into the national scene doing larger, awesome scripted productions, we got heavily involved in AR VR, and then out of all, the, all of a sudden, kind of the newest evolution of virtual production comes along. And so we really dove really quickly into virtual production because it uses Unreal Engine, the same as we were using for augmented reality and virtual reality. And that really kind of solidified our journey into what we are now, which is a company that pursues any type of motion 
while I think bringing to a lot of our partners and a lot of our clients, this kind of thought process of like, well, most 3D digital assets are transferable. So if you're doing a production with some sort of virtual background, are you using that real estate on your digital experiences? Are you using that real estate here, using it here? Um, uh, because it has never been more transferable than it is today. And so people are really able to scale creative in a very different way than they have before. So that's kind of what brought us to where we are today. That's super fascinating. I mean, so, you know, it sounded like you had this onset experience of dealing with large, you know, tranches of data that turned kind of your interest into kind of classic post-production services, but it's really evolved. I mean, how long have you been in this business yourself? And then how long has Optic Sky been around? Yeah, so I, I really started freelancing even when I was a student in college. Um, but but Optic Sky itself as a company has been around for nine years. I've been I've been doing it over a decade. How have you seen what are the biggest changes you've seen in the last nine years in terms of kind of your production operation from like practical work moving into this really like digital space? Like I'm very curious like how it's evolving in terms of your clients and then what you're also delivering at the end of the day. It's a great question, and it's almost a loaded one because I think it depends on what angle we take it from, and I always will indulge any of the angles. I think there's kind of three facets of how it's evolved in, in the way I look at it. The creative asks have evolved. You know, I think you get a lot of people who say like, oh, you know, productions are getting smaller or like people, you know, don't want as much traditional production. And, and I'd say that's totally not true. I think production is very alive and well, and I think that it's it's evolved in a really, really killer way actually uh recently you know but um a lot of the classic venues for it have changed at the same time though what i found is you know we had started at the time when broadcast buys were really kind of shifting into taking online seriously hey aaron i mean that's super awesome your background you know coming from production building a production company and really kind of going on this journey from practical production to now where it's evolving so quickly between web three and AR and VR and digital experiences and metaverses. Uh, I'm curious, can you walk us through a typical production process at Optic Sky? Like, what do you believe sets your production work apart from others in the industry? It's a great, great question. I'm trying to figure out the, the best way to answer it because um, I almost can take very little credit for this. So, so um, our head of production, Matt O'Neill, He's a total sharpshooter. And I think one thing that we re he helped us realize um, several years back was project management across any medium is something that we actually see as a weakness in production most of the time. I think we take it for granted that productions manage well, but we're an industry that works a lot like construction. You have an, a firm bid, an upfront budget. Your uh, success is defined by, did you make the building that you set out to make? Did it look good? But also, did you come under budget and did you make sure there's no like, you know, injuries along the way, right? And so for us, when we started moving to other mediums, we realized that like that, that has to translate across other projects. We need the project managed in a way. So actually what we did was he had the whole team train up on traditional project management and some non-traditional project management. And um, part of our process, having come from kind of make it up as we went at the beginning of the stages, right? And and not necessarily saying like from day one, being young kids, we weren't like, oh, we know AICP. We know we, we really grew into that. And we really grew into the national scene and doing the, the million dollar productions and doing, you know, 
the half million dollar productions that that somehow are the same size as the million dollar productions, right? And what we really found was managing client expectations by being a true partner and getting them what they actually want uh, is kind of what actually sets us apart. And and the way I say that is uh, is for a reason. You know, I think some people will argue, oh, you know, clients never know what they want. I'm like, no, clients know exactly what they want. Most of the time, they they are really good at knowing what they want, and they, they're at least good at knowing what they're tasked with. Um, but production, like construction, is such a huge undertaking that what they don't have time for is to worry about all the minutiae of how to get there. And I think that you know a lot of people think that they can pride themselves on being a little bit like a, a you know shepherding clients through and and doing that. But I think there is a nuance to it um, that we figured out a long time ago, which was if you really treat it like traditional project management, it's not about trying to overly please a client for what you think they want. It's about really setting up great expectations up front and setting what the key performance metrics are of the project so that you can actually give them what they they really do want. And a good example of this, a kind of a contrast I can give is we've gotten into some like traditional agency bids and the agency's prerogative is to make an awesome creative. But what we're hearing in the calls is like, well, the client wants to do this, the client wants to do that. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, we'll figure it out. And we're going like, well, our assumption is you want to make this amazing. Our assumption is the client wants something amazing. But what we're hearing in the call is that you're kind of willing to settle. And we need to like have this conversation up front of what are the non-negotiables, what are the settling points, and what are the points that need to be amazing. We want it to be totally amazing. We also understand that your budget just got slashed in half, for example. So let's as partners have the creative conversation what's going to change on the creative to make what we actually you know execute on amazing and it sounds so simple and a lot of companies go like oh yeah obviously like that's what you do but i think a lot of people somewhere in that process kind of back down in a, in a weird way or they shut down and they don't aggressively have those conversations up front and then what ends up happening is every step of the way during pre-production there is this dilution that goes on and so i think you know all that to be said we try to make sure it's run really well. So A, we come out with an amazing creative, but B, it's something that we know and can put our signature on, even though we don't do the media buy, it's going to get results based on what the actual media ask is. And C, we treat our vendors really, really well. And the only way to do all three of those things is to project manage the absolute heck out of a um, out of a project and to have a scalable solution. And I think this is where, like, even the tech stack makes a big difference. Like, right, like, shameless plug to Wrapbook. But, you know, you a lot of people want to have this amazing production management system across all their productions, across all the deliverables, but they're hiring producers freelance that have different processes. And, you know, unless you have that book and that Bible of, uh, this is exactly how we need every production to be run. And here's what we lay down. And a lot of those are very executional. You know, most of the companies like, you know, the smugglers of the world and, and, and other major companies have long since uh, established you know, those processes and, and we followed in their footsteps. A lot of mid-sized to smaller production companies don't go through the process because they think they have to have three offices or a global presence to get to that point. And my argument is that you don't. If you start from that standpoint, from everything to how you manage the clients, how you hire, how you, you know, structure the PO to what your tech stack is, then you'll actually scale faster. And then one day you're going to look back and be like, you know, thankfully we did that. And so I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing too is... um because we've put so much time, effort, and money into new technologies and new types of work, you know, we have a lot of opportunities to say, hey, this is amazing. 
we noticed that you're also doing this across these mediums, you know, we can, we can be a partner in that too. And maybe not this project, but next project, you know, think of us. And so we, we become for clients a little bit more than just a singular vendor for a singular purpose. Um, and I think that helps a lot. And, you know, agencies appreciate that. Clients appreciate that alike. It's been pretty good for us. That's awesome, Aaron. I mean, so it's not just kind of classic production operations. Like it sounds like you, you've built the foundation from kind of classic commercial production work, but now you are repositioning or you're positioning your business to really be a production company focused on motion around 3D digital assets, VR, AR. Can you kind of like help us understand how you have dived headfirst into this world and and what influenced the decision and, and how this is playing into your overall production strategy at Optic Sky? Yeah, it's really funny. Like, um, I think stumming's just a nerd, you know? Like, I'll just be the first. I'm just a total nerd, man. Um, uh, yeah, like, I just, you know, I just, I just love this stuff. But I originally, when I first went to college back in the day for, um, for film school, I, I came there to be an animator. And I always had a sick love for animation. Um, but my best friend, who I still, uh, we're still best friends and still actually work together all the time, which is great, um, you know, felt, was in love with the camera. And so I actually fell in love with the camera because we, we wanted to collaborate all the time. And, and so how we fell into these technologies was originally like, I just, we, we, we had, we were doing post, we were doing animation, we were doing live action production. And someone told me, they were like, hey, have you seen this VR short? You know, and like, you know, this is going to be really cool. And at the time, I mean, if you think about like four or five years ago, VR kind of had this like moment where people were like, wait a minute, like this is going to be the next thing again. You know, like it's it's kind of had those moments for the last 30 years, but um, off and on. But it, it kind of had this like resurgence again, where I think clients are trying to find different ways to do experiences. And this is pre-COVID. So hygiene wasn't as much of an issue of wearing a headset in public, right? So a lot of these like, public experiential things we're kind of moving into this vr space and so we were like well let's let's dive more into vr like that was our thing like we can create narratives in vr we can have directors work with us to, to create some dope narratives we can do some cool experiential stuff and you know our 3d animators could like you know in our roster of of, of extension could all participate in creating assets for that um and that kind of set the stage for like where we are today like all the way back then it was like we were like they can create assets for that and it felt like it was not a whole new offering. It was like an extension of an offering with a little bit of a, little bit of a of a new kick, right? What were your first projects in kind of building these sort of stories in these virtual worlds? Well, that's the funny part is like you dive into something thinking you're going to walk out with what you expect to walk out with, but we we kind of didn't. We um, we immediately hired because of our great relationship with RIT and, and Rochester. Um, and, and just the amazing talent that comes out of there. We immediately hired uh, two incredible artists out of there that were both kind of a film. They had this amazing VR film as their thesis. And we were like, we're going to create narrative. But our clientele is commercial, right? And so, you know, at first I was like, this will just be kind of like an R&D budget. And, um, we'll just do that. But what ended up happening was we had clients asking, what's, what's, what's the utility of this? And so we actually ended up starting to create utilitarian uses for it. So instead of creating the shorts, we actually were like, well, what if it was this or what if it was that? Like, what if what if you know you create experience that achieved this and achieved that? And um, so we ended up creating like a lot of like use cases for VR that actually were more applicable to clients because it was something that was actually usable. It wasn't just like, well, that's cool. Someone's going to watch that and then they're done with it. It was like, 
hey, like this is how you can train someone to do this like in a totally new way, or this is how you can do this like really fun experience, but actually what they're getting out of it is this educational value here. And, and so some of those first projects were like everything from like training modules that were like really gamified, almost like, you know, uh, like DDR style types of training for like really cool physical things that people need to do to we created for like some museums, some like interactive, instead of like totally VR, we created some like first uh, VR based interactive exhibits, you know, like for dinosaurs and like other cool things. And then that actually kind of moved quickly into kind of the where we led AR and then kind of virtual production and, and some of those other offerings, which was, um, wait a minute, COVID hit, you know, no one wants to touch someone else's anything. Um, can you create touchless interactions? Can you create interactions that, you know, use the same engine, all these assets that we're creating? And can you do something that's in front of somebody, but they don't have to physically touch it? And that's when we really pushed AR hard. And that's when we pushed, I think, some of, you know, using aspects of VR in, you know, more like projection or LED and and all those types of things. So it was kind of like a, a, a weird but a long journey that like took us from point A to B. You've mentioned a few times like the power of creating these digital assets for your clients and those being able to be deployed and utilized in all different types of mediums, whether that's AR, VR, classic distribution models. I'm curious, have you all been thinking about Web3 and digital ownership? I'm curious how that's kind of playing into your work, if at all. Yeah, it's a great question. We have, and in fact, um, it's funny, we got into even before it's called Web3, like we got into blockchain technology in like 2017. I mean, we we had so many direct tech clients at the time. We were at every blockchain conference you could imagine. And I remember, um, I tell this story all the time, uh, if you want to set the scene for like what blockchain was for people in 2017, like um, I was at this conference one time, this guy gets up and to start the whole conference, he was like, hey, everyone, welcome to the conference. Like, here's our first panel of the day. Um, just to start it off, you know, here's the first question, like, um, I think we can all agree in here when it's like 2050 and like half of our governments have collapsed because they, you know, they aren't the strongest economy anymore because it's global decentralized economies, you know, like um, that this and this and this can happen. And I just remember being there being like, what is even happening? I mean, like take a step back. This guy just say like, you know, governments are going to collapse because of decentralized, you know, uh, of currency. And, um, you know, the scene was wild back then, but the technology behind the scene um, and how it's kind of translated to Web3 here with the ownership thing was always to make sure that it was super transparent and that, you know, uh, the Walmart case that is my favorite, where it used to take them three hours to up to a day to figure out where a food contamination is. Actually, using blockchain technology takes them three minutes to figure out where a food contamination in their, in their supply chain is, right? So it's an amazingly fast and transparent technology, which is awesome. And so people then started to talk about ownership of digital assets because of how good this technology was, right? Here's the problem and why we haven't as a company made an offering that gets us into it as much as just keep our eye on it. The problem is that if you're an original content company and you want to capitalize on that, you need to keep your eye not only on the content that you're creating, but on the technology because every other day, a platform that was considered safe and a platform that is trying to uh, hold your interest and rights in, in something uh, fails and then all of that's gone despite whose interest it is and another platform opens up and um, our whole thing was for it to be an offering for us because we work with clients and we're not just an original content company that just distributes ourselves we have to be able to recommend it to a client with pure confidence and liability and everything that like yeah we're going to create this thing you guys are going to own this among these platforms 
and no one's going to be able to mess with your usage. And then the next day that platform is not going to crumble. And I think we're at a very unstable, unstable time still with, with Web3. And um, you see a lot of brands that are investing heavy amounts of money into Web3 real estate and all these other things. And I think it's amazing. And they should be doing that. But if you ask any of them, it's still R&D. It's not, you know, like minus live concerts and like some experiential events where they're really making money off of it. Most of this is like a very small R&D budget for them because they're still testing it out. However, what we have invested in is the concept that is behind Web3, which is that, to your point, like what is the, the glue that brings all these things together? 3D digital assets. And we're happy to create that for other people and let them do the R&D on like what the usage is of that to make sure that they're getting, they're successfully R&Ding and like, you know, uh, getting into the space. But we're not at the moment going, hey, here's the route you should take to create this, 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 and this. We don't want to define that for them because I think for every brand we're seeing publicly that some brands are tanking that effort and some brands are doing it and they're, they're killing it, right? And, and for us, we want to be able to guarantee results if we're saying, with confidence that we're going to do this for you and this is how it's going to work. That makes a lot of sense. So Aaron, we've spoken very broadly about kind of classic production, uh, the evolution of kind of practical productions into this kind of new digital world that we're going into. Could you tell us about one of your favorite projects you've worked on at Optic Sky and what makes it stand out for you? In traditional production, one comes to mind still to date because it's before what we would do today. If we were to do, it was this, the Wegmans Meals to Go project, uh, it was called Lear, and it was um, when they just first had introduced their Meals to Go offering. And the reason we loved it was, it was a funny comedy spot. It was great. It was, you know, the, the idea behind it was a um, an astronaut, like, you know, totally like perfectly replica lands on the moon with like the classic lunar lander. And then, um, it just like reveals that there's just like an alien in front of him. Um, and then it turns out all he was doing was just delivering his Wegmans meals to go to him. Um, and they know each other. Uh, and like, it was just a fun spot, right? Classic, like comedy dialogue. But what we loved about the spot was we practically recreated the moon. We did 5,000 square feet of moon surface. We, we recreated, uh, to a accurate percentage of scale, the lunar lander. We used the, you know, the same suit Ryan Gosling was in for his his uh, classic movie for, you know, um, of land, first landing on the moon. And like, you know, like we got to do, we got to do the whole thing. And we did very little post. You know, we had blocked out the whole studio around it. And all we did was just add a little, you know, a little atmosphere and, and a little earth. And and we even, I mean, literally, like I said, I'm a nerd, even down to like the gaffer did the calculations of like point lighting from a sun, right? Like we did like everything to try to make it, you know, as accurate within a small studio as you could, right? Um, but what I love about that project today is that I can think of seven different ways we could have executed on that project now. And I don't know if I would have done it differently, but I love that there's, then, then there was only one way to do this that was, that made sense for the budget. Today for that same budget, we could have done three different bids and we could have thought of three different ways. And each one has advantages. We could have done it in virtual production. We could have done it, you know, in a giant LED studio. We could have done it the way we did it, where we blacked up the whole studio and created the whole surface and, and did a little bit of post. We could have done it where um, we live were able to kind of green screen comp it and, and actually see a few things and pick different sections to kind of comp out. But uh, either way, the project was had such good vibes, right? Um, and what we ended up having to do to tackle that project to to, um, to quality was pretty pretty wild within the budget. And so I love that. That's like my one of my favorite 
projects. Another one that, that comes to mind for traditional product shows is called Fruit in the Bottom, but the idea, the, the, the agency's idea was just awesome. It was, um, it was Fruit on the Bottom yogurt, but they wanted to kind of do fake out commercials. It's like a fake fashion commercial. So they actually created bejeweled, like, like fruit on the bottom, like fruit bejeweled patches for jeans uh, on the butt. And, uh, and it was just like the whole commercial, you're thinking you're watching the most ridiculous fashion ad. And then it just turns out it's like a total, total bait and switch. So those are probably the, my two favorites there. And then I think, um, probably on, on the digital side, I, I think one of my favorite projects to date was, um, for this band joy waves, um, her good friends of ours, uh, we did the first ever augmented reality, um, song drop, um, in an interactive way. So, so like you get these all the time now, but we actually did, um, uh, we created this like called joy wave radio and you could actually tune. It was like an AR filter on social deployed on social. Um, and you could actually tune the radio. And not only did we drop, um, this is when, when, you know, meta was first had really kind of first done spark AR, you could tune the radio. There's 12 minutes of original content on there. So they actually re-recorded the previous song they had dropped in like a totally different, like fun way. They had a, a talk show station that had four minutes of like talk show that was just making fun of themselves basically um and then they had the new song drop and so people had to like tune it like use the filter and then they realized when they tuned it that they didn't recognize the song and then they realized it was a song drop um it was very on brand for the band because they're very you know very cool fun and meta um but i think that was my favorite one still today because they just were so cool about how they went about the content that's super awesome i mean i'm really curious on your thoughts aaron of like the MetaQuest, Apple's new Vision Pro, how these types of experiences you think are going to augment or change our kind of practical production, advertising in these spaces. Um, you know, something that I just love about, as an aside before, you know, giving you space to answer that question, like something I just love about our industry is like, I feel like it's finally happening where the very best of technology is really starting to integrate with production. You know, like I think production has always been a technology. It always has been. It's always been its own kind of corner of the technology landscape versus like Silicon Valley. But like it really is starting to come together. And you're seeing this from Amazon and Apple doing production work, but then also building these incredible hardware experiences. And it's all starting to just blend. So curious how you all at Optic Sky are thinking about these experiences and I'm also really curious if, you know, from there you could kind of share your vision of what Optic Sky is becoming and how you kind of plan to utilize your digital asset creation and services across these different platforms. Wow. Yeah, what a great question. I could talk all day about this, just FYI. So I will I will try to keep it brief because um I probably talked for two days with um, uh, with friends after the Apple release. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. You know, being in the AR space, we, we are pre-devs for a lot of companies. So we kind of knew what was coming. Um, and here's what I'll say about production kind of coming together with these worlds. Everything that we do comes back to what the audience feels. And today, the audience interacts with content in such a different way. You know, it used to be that I still love watching trailers before movies at the theater, and I still go to the theater. But a lot of people have dope home entertainment systems now and they're at home and the way they watch trailers is they go to youtube they go to imdb and they watch the trailers there because they don't need to watch ads or trailers when they're you know at their tv a lot of those same people are now using you know what they call second screen 
where they're interacting with their phone based on the content they're watching on the TV. To your point about really production kind of moving and merging technologies. Um, all that to say, whether you're on your phone and you're interacting with an AR filter or a technology, whether you're, on, you're in a headset, whether you're um, at your home theater or you're at the actual theater, our whole positioning at Optic Sky has, has been and is embrace what's changed to do what hasn't. And people want to feel something. You know, they just want to walk away and move. They want to feel something. They want to either laugh hysterically. They want to shed a really dramatic tear or they want to, you know, uh, they just want to get amped up, right? Um, and so I'm with you. I love how productions, I think, really kind of merging and embracing technology. What's really happening, in my opinion, is that creation is getting merged. Not just production, right? But like creation of content is getting merged. So we create a, a commercial they go, cool, when that commercial's running, we want we, we have the tech stack now so that we can actually buzz someone's phone for the deal that we're advertising on that based. We know that they, they're on our email list and their text list. And that's going to lead into this cool interactive thing that they do. And if they do, they win the competition and they get this. Like People are finding a way to gamify life right now. And I think whereas creating video content is a passive experience, you can still really evoke emotion. Um, everything else right now is a very active experience. And so where I think all this is going with Apple's announcement, with um, some of the quest improvements and, you know, where AR is going is I think there's, it's going to take longer than we think for people to get past watching the idea of a screen. If you, if you look at Apple's interface for their new, their new, you know, um, their new goggles, it's like that you still have squares. The interface is still squares all around you in front of you because we're not embracing yet the idea that like I could walk around 3D content and I'm watching a 3D object. I want to watch a screen, but within a 3D space, right? And I want to watch many of them, and I want to be able to move them around and, and do all that. So we're not past that age yet. But we are in the generation, and I think that is literally kids right now, by the time they're grown up, is going to embrace 3D space in general. And what we have to be ready for when it comes to embracing 3D space is that the way they visualize data, content, everything is going to be wildly different. And, and why I keep talking about 3D assets across multiple channels is that I think today, until Apple's goggles are this, this form factor, there's still an escapism. It, you know, do I want to, I, I already hate being in front of my laptop all day, like doing Zoom calls and, and typing. I love white, you know, I love walking and being on calls much more than being on that. Do I want to have a, a four or five pound goggle on my head? And, and literally be worried about tripping over something that's in front of me, you know, because I'm stuck even in that. Maybe, maybe the interface is so good that it's useful, but when it comes to like um, entertainment and content and merging that production technology, what I think we're entering the, the day and age of is how do I make my co content so relevant on a passive way that people will be willing to watch it in a 3D space? And then what extension of that content am I creating that they can interact with that makes them want to actually engage with it past that and i think that everyone's coming to a similar conclusion of how that's going to work i don't think anyone's nailed it yet and i think in the next five years or so we're going to see someone kind of nail it and i want to say it's going to be apple but there's a little ways that we have to go i think before that totally nails it and i know this is like a long answer but if i could summarize like all of my thoughts with today versus tomorrow and like one thought today we're evolving we're using technology to evolve how we create passive content and merge it with active content. Tomorrow, we're going to be taking, everything is going to be active content and engagement that we can truly interact with 
in a 3D space. And it's going to be in a form factor that like we can't even fathom right now, or we can fathom, but definitely is nowhere near there yet. Um, and so any production company that thinks that five years from now, someone's just going to be watching an ad on a television and that's it. And that's enough to get someone to take a buying action. They're totally going to be lost in five years. But people that are embracing some of the newer technologies to go, hey, we know enough about this to know that maybe while you're running this campaign that we're doing, this might be happening. Those people are going to be along with the curve. And those that are understanding when you are in a VR space and you walk around an object, that that object can interact with you and that object in and of itself is its own real estate ad, uh, those people are going to be ahead of the curve in, in five years, I think. Um, and so that's kind of where, where we're taking. And I think that's where I, I think a lot of people are going to be going. Aaron, super helpful. You know, as we wrap up our conversation, I want to ask for your advice, which is, you know, we have listeners out there who are passionate about production. They are so brilliant and they're able to bring crazy ideas to life on screen. Um, for folks that are really curious in the production world of digging into VR, AR, motion graphics, 3D digital assets, Based on your experience and journey, like what advice would you give them? Where should folks be focusing on learning and what kind of mindset should they have as they navigate this like very emergent and very fascinating sort of next wave of production? It's a great question. If I, I mean, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt because everyone's going to find their own path. I sure found my own path uh, despite different pieces of advice. But if I had to, to give any sort of thought starter maybe rather than advice it would be acquire talent and treat them well that have a diverse perspective on this that aren't just another production person trying to get into it like acquire the talent that like knows this world first our biggest strength as production people is to tell a narrative and at the end of the day every single thing that we create tells a story whether it's an ar filter vr you know even if it's a training engagement you're still trying to, to evoke emotion and tell a story so we should be using, I think anyone should be using our strength as, as production people, as storytellers, to merge ourselves with people that are maybe technologically a little bit more geared towards some of these newer deliverables. And that way it's a win-win. We're helping them understand how to tell a story and they're helping us understand how to embrace technology. And I think as long as that we can do that, we're going to keep making people truly feel something. And we're really going to actually like touch them, not just kind of force a technology on them. And the other thing that I would say is anyone who's afraid of, you know, on the other hand of what you asked, if people are afraid of this, just ask yourself the last time you shot something on green screen. And was that there when you first started? Because green screen wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we take it for granted now, it's everywhere. But the what green screen changed for visual effects, you know, we didn't have this all that long ago, right? And so, you know, it seems so scary today, but tomorrow it's going to seem so normal and it's going to be everywhere. And so, you know, if, if for anyone that's afraid to embrace some of these new things, just find someone who's not afraid because they're probably afraid to touch production. And, you know, as long as it's a mutually beneficial relationship, you, you know, just find people that take you out of your comfort zone. That's what I, I feel like do every day. <laughs> just find people that know way better than I do on things that I'm like, ah, it's scary. <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, so I'm actually kicking off a new tradition to end these on-production podcasts, which is uh, I want to ask guests, who is it that in their career in production really helped them out a lot? You know, for me in my journey in production, I have found that I became a better producer and a better creator of stories based off of just amazing people around me, project after project. 
So I'm curious, and I'm sure that there's a number of people, but what's just one person that had an incredible influence on your career uh, as a producer and storyteller? Oh man, that is, that's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to, man, I'm trying to think of just one. I, there are so many people that have affected me positively in my career. Like I, I take so little credit for the amount that I know today because it's like usually somebody else told me this. Um, uh, oof. Okay. If I'm being honest with you, our head of production, Matt, you like, he not only makes me a better person, you know, and, and I is, and is a dear friend, but like, you know, going all the way back to what we talked about earlier, like, I think from the, how to make an amazing production standpoint, he changed my whole life from a storytelling standpoint. I would say probably Sullivan, who was uh, one of the first directors we worked a lot with. You know, he really saw, I think, stories and things that are so mundane and was like, oh my God, there's a whole narrative here, you know? Um, but I, I think, you know, today I have a whole new set of people. You know, that's, that's the classics, right? But today I have a whole new set of people. I mean, you know, my partners over at Synapse as well, you know, the, our, the new virtual production company that we're, we're opening out in LA, like, some of those guys are vets and I've been around much longer than I have. And, and those guys are pushing me in ways that I've never, I, it's hard to limit the, the, the list down to one person, but man, I, I, I'll give you a whole, a whole Bible worth of them. You know, that's awesome. Aaron. Well, thank you so much for being on, on production and sharing a bit of your story. Really appreciate the time. Oh my gosh. I appreciate it as well. Thank you for having me.